Welcome to episode 26 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. Check out all the shows. You can find them at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. We're about halfway through this 50 episode series looking at suicide prevention for service members, veterans, and their families. We appreciate all the guests we've had on the show so far, as well as the comments and feedback that we've received. To kick off the second half of the project, we wanted to bring back a previous guest to discuss developments with the program. Back on episode one, we hosted Dr. Barbara Van Dalen to give us an overview of the PREVENTS Task Force. PREVENTS, which stands for the President's Roadmap to Empower Veterans and End the National Tragedy of Suicide, was developed as a result of Executive Order 13861. I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that first episode for an in-depth discussion of what PREVENTS is and what the task force hopes to achieve. We're bringing Dr. Van Dalen back on the show to talk about the task force roadmap, which was announced on June 17, 2020. We'll have links to the roadmap and the PREVENTS website on the show notes. One technical note, you will hear a shift in audio shortly after we begin, which is a result of some technical difficulties that required us to resort to another recording method. So let's get into the conversation, and Shauna and I will come back afterwards for some brief thoughts. So I really appreciate you coming back on the show. You were our first guest, really kicking off this project of the, the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. And as we're halfway through, you have just announced the roadmap that you've been working on for a while to sort of map out a way forward for all of us sort of in the nation, which is a huge task. Thank you, Dwayne. Yes, it is a huge task, but obviously I didn't do it alone and our team had access to and worked with over a year, every federal agency and over 150 subject matter experts. It was an extraordinary process. I think it's hard to understand. It certainly was hard for me to understand coming from outside of government, stepping into this role just about a year ago, what goes into this kind of project and effort. It's the sausage making, if you will. I mean, we adjudicated, responded to over 2,000 comments over the time that we were putting this work together. But we're very proud of this. It will be a great foundation to build on with all of our partner organizations. We have two years to implement this. Does that mean that everything will be done? Of course not. But two years is a good amount of time to make sure that we get things embedded, coordinated, and efforts started. Yes. And it's one of those things where everybody's like, we're waiting to see because suicide is so complicated. How do we wrap our hands around it? Many people have tried. And what Prevents has done has sort of categorized some of the efforts that we as a nation are going to be coming together to do in really a way to be able to help individuals understand this, this huge undertaking. And so being able to get into some of those categories, there's many, many recommendations. You identified 10, but those 10 fit into four specific categories. To look at the actual roadmap itself, a very nice, tight 
60-page document that folks can find on our website, which is va.gov slash prevents. We also have there the companion piece. It's a 300-page document that really goes through everything we did and how we did it and a full collection of recommendations. There's over 150. So those 150 really, they fall into these 10 big ones, if you will. And then those 10 really fall into one of four areas of strategic focus that we will be working on. In fact, we just launched the first one. And the first area of focus is our communication strategy. And we just launched a massive public health campaign that is focused on engaging all Americans in this conversation around suicide prevention. So that's the first main area is communications, because we have to change the culture. We have to change the way people talk about mental health in general and suicide in particular. So that's the first area of focus. The second strategic area of focus is on research. We need to look at research in a new way. We need to make sure that our research efforts are coordinated, that data is shared, that data is integrated, and most importantly, that data is translated so that people can make use of it. The third area of focus is on programs, because all this work, we could have the best programs in the world at the federal level, but if they're not actually being implemented at the community level, they're useless. So programmatic, and how do we partner with government partners and our non-government partners? And then finally, policy work, because policy allows us to change the way we access care, make sure that care is available, make sure that we remove barriers that prevent people from understanding how to seek care, where to seek care, and how to take care of themselves and their loved ones. And, and really, it's a matter of uh, trying to, again, sort of corral these things. There's a lot of overlap between them. And so really, maybe to get into the 10 specific overarching recommendations, you had talked about creating and implementing a national public health campaign. So that's recommendation one. Recommendations two and three are really about the research. So number two was identify and prioritize suicide surveillance research that focuses on unique individual social and societal factors. That really applies to the fact that suicide is unique, but also we have to have our interventions be able to be uniquely tailored. Absolutely. And we're starting to see movement toward what folks in the physical health sector refer to as as, uh, precision medicine. So what might work for Duane, because of your experiences, your background, your inherited risk factors, not be the same for me. And so we need to look at how do we better understand risk factors, protective factors, and interventions for individuals. This new sort of tailored or precision approach, there's work being done, but we really want to encourage and facilitate and support that. And it's the future. This is not something that will happen immediately, but we can make progress and we can learn as we go and then feed that back into whether it's the Department of Veterans Affairs efforts or DOD efforts or community efforts. And that's exactly what we're seeing is is many of us have often talked about suicide interventions in El Paso County, Colorado is going to be different than Tallahassee, Florida, 
or suicide interventions for minority veterans may be different than suicide interventions for other groups. And so that's important. Another research point was changing the way that research is conducted. You referred to the fact that how do we get those interventions out into the field quicker? In the past, it's been esoteric research and narrow focus and not really applicable to what's happening to people's regular lives, so to speak. But your goal is to get the research that works into the hands that people need it faster. As a, a psychologist and a social scientist, I value research. It, it, it's so important that we have facts and data to drive interventions, to drive how we reach people. But often that hasn't been translated in a way that allows uh, even people like me who have a background, unless you're involved in the study. And sometimes, frankly, the studies end up being lined on bookshelves and, and they never are translated into data that can help people at the community level. And so we're really focused on how we conduct research, including the speed and the accuracy with which research is translated into practice. And how do we do that? We have to incentivize researchers in new and different ways and really support what's known as team science, which allows different types of individuals with different types of background to work together it allows us to maintain that pipeline, if you will, from what we're learning to translate and ensure that folks who want to use that information as quickly as possible can get it into the hands of folks who are reaching those who are struggling and those who are in need. And I think that's very important because there's a lot of things that people think may work and may not work or, or don't work, but not having the research to back it up, that it either is or isn't effective means we can kind of be spinning our wheels for a long time. The next recommendation is really effective partnerships across government agencies and non-government entities and organizations to help increase capacity and the impact of suicide prevention programs. And that's referring to the practical application of a lot of this research. Absolutely. And you know me, Dwayne. We've known each other for a while. I like big tents. We've spent the last year developing these partnerships with our government partners. And again, people outside of the government may not understand. I certainly needed to, to be in this space and talk to and listen to people. There's so much great work that's happening in government agencies, but there aren't many structures in place to ensure that collaboration and coordination happens on an ongoing basis. It's not that it doesn't happen. It does. We've seen tremendous coordination, obviously, but we have to have a coordinated, ongoing effort, which is what we're building. And, and we're using some really innovative and interesting mechanisms to ensure that we are constantly working with tracking, assessing, understanding, coordinating, sharing with our government partners and our non-government partners. A lot of our, our work the last year has been in the development of a, some very key, wonderful partnerships with academic institutions, with other nonprofits, our VSO and MSO community, hugely important, and also the private sector corporation. So we won't be successful. And it's hard work. And I think that's why it often fails. We see it at the community level, these efforts, which, again, that's our area of focus. 
community collaboration, coordination, collective impact, but it has to happen all the way up the line. And again, it's challenging because everybody has their work to do. And so unless there is a coordinated effort, which is what prevents is, to ensure that, yes, do your good work over there in your space, but let's make sure we have the doors open so that silos don't prevent us from sharing and interacting. And the fact that as in the military, when a new commander or first sergeant comes in and their priorities shift, or even higher if a new commanding general comes in, or even at the highest level from one administration to the other, as focus shifts, policies tend to shift. And what you're talking about is establishing something that is going to be consistent regardless of who's sitting in what chair. Thank you. Yes. And we have been talking a lot about that with our friends on the Hill, our friends on both sides of the aisle. We've had great support for this work. Of course, this is Washington and we're in an election year. And so people are concerned about what will happen if the administration were to change. But again, the good news is this administration is very committed to ensure that this work goes forward. That's why we have a two-year sort of additional life for this effort, is that it's not just a report. It's not, okay, here's a roadmap, now goodbye. It's, here's a roadmap, and now let's get to work and make sure it's implemented. And I think because there's such bipartisan support, and because we've been doing our work, building these partnerships, it will continue it will survive regardless of the changes, as you said, at the command level, at the administration level, and as members of Congress come and go, we are building this partnership with staff members and the American public. Going back to the public health campaign that we just launched, which is called REACH, uh, we have a, a website, wearewithinreach.net. I encourage people to go and learn about how everyone has to be part of this solution. That will allow us to ensure that the work continues regardless of who's in any office. And that's my passion. Regardless of how long I'm here, I want to make sure that everything we do pushes this conversation where it needs to be, which this needs to be a national, all hands on deck, all of nation, all of government effort. And I think that's important. And obviously this is, again, an emerging theme out of this project is suicide prevention is everyone's job. It's everyone's goal, obviously. And that really goes into recommendations five and six. Uh, Five is encouraging employers and academic institutions to provide comprehensive mental health and wellness practices. That doesn't say suicide prevention. That's how do we get things to be better. But then six is to provide and promote comprehensive suicide prevention training across professions so that it's not just something that mental health providers do or or case managers do, but it's something that construction workers do or bartenders do or realtors do. And, And so these two really look at that left of the boom thing we keep talking about is how do we keep people from getting into a suicide? out of crisis in the first place. Absolutely, Duane. You said it so beautifully, yes. And so there are a lot of pieces here that I want to sort of underscore. We need to get everyone to understand. We need all Americans to understand risk factors. We all have them. I have them because of my family history and some experiences that I've had. I've had a fair amount of trauma in my life. This work that we're doing, and especially the REACH public health campaign, is for everyone because anyone can be at risk. Anyone. So we must educate people so that 
people are having these conversations with each other, with their loved ones, way, way before we are at a point of crisis. We have to get far, far, far in front of that, because when you're at the point of crisis, it's very difficult unless we intervene and and recognize that that person is in crisis. The person, him or herself, may not be at a very rational place to, to then recognize, oh my gosh, I am really at risk. I am really in danger. But having the the conversations earlier where we start to think about and talk about just the way we have moved in this direction around cancer, where there are cancer screenings, and we, we are more mindful of, am I at greater risk? These are conversations that we've never had before. So that's in the, the sort of public domain. Then we look at professions. One would think that all mental health professionals have proper training around suicide risk and and prevention. Well, they don't. We don't. We don't all get that training. It seems sort of odd, maybe, to think about that. But we need to ensure, and that's why we have partnerships now with the American Psychological Association, the National Association of Social Workers, to ensure that all of their members, and then we're moving out to ensure that every mental health profession And I welcome any folks who are involved at the association level. If I didn't mention your association and you hear this and you want to help us reach your association, let us know. We'd we'd be happy to work on that. And then there are the other professions. We're now talking with the American Medical Association. We've been meeting regularly with first responders. So, yes, it's everyone's responsibility. We know that in the workplace, companies are now looking at ensuring that their employees have background support training around mental health in general. We started working through a partnership with the Hiring Our Heroes initiative of the Chamber of Commerce. This is, in a way, an exciting time. It's also necessary. So these recommendations allow us to, in a very intentional way, ensure that the conversations and the training are happening everywhere. That is definitely important. And then moving on to, you've mentioned it a couple times, the community-based intervention. We're seeing this. Colorado Springs is about 90 miles south of Denver. And just having communities that close together requires different interventions. Um, There's different resources available in communities. If you go 90 miles west from Colorado Springs, you're in the Central Mountain regions. And so recommendation seven is looking at identifying, evaluating, promoting these community-based model because as you said, that's where the work gets done in our hometowns and in our communities. Absolutely. And before COVID hit, Prevents was out on the road and we had visited five states. And the reason for that is we did a tremendous amount of outreach and we had a request for information. We got over a thousand offerings from folks all over the country, community organizations and academic institutions telling us, here's what we've seen that's effective, here's what we think you should do. But we also wanted to be out in community. So we visited five states and our plan was to continue on that path and visit because there's nothing like being in the community and listening, listening to a coalition, listening to what people are finding in their communities is effective, listening about what are the roadblocks that they're finding, what are their needs. So then COVID hit. So we did a couple of things and we'll continue in this way. 
first thing we did is we reached out to our VSO and our MSO community, and we invited them to do in-depth interviews with our team. And so we conducted 29 interviews with VSO and MSO organizations. So we wanted to meet to find out. We're going to release a report in a few weeks to, to share what we learned and hopefully so that we can help and look at ways that we, through Prevents, can support our uh, nonprofit partners, the VSO and MSO community. And that was one thing we did. And the other thing we did is last week we launched our first virtual state visit. We went to Indiana for two days, held, I think, seven meetings through Zoom and various platforms. It was phenomenal and in some ways allowed us to meet with people from across the state that we might actually not have been able to do had we gone in person. So we're going to continue those virtual state meetings. And over the next two years, obviously, when we can get back on the road, we will. But in the meantime, we're going to visit because we learn and we find additional partners that we can engage with because our goal is to lift up best practices, to identify new and innovative opportunities. And as we bring in that research that we talked about earlier in this conversation, make sure that we can get it into the hands of community-based organizations that are doing the good work. And as you and I know, one size does not fit all. And as you mentioned, what happens and what's effective in one community may not work in another, but through our efforts, we can, and our goal is to do as much coordination, integration, support, identification across communities across the country so that we create a really well-coordinated, comprehensive, from that prevention, early identification, and also crisis response. That's the goal, to knit that together. But it is, it's the community-based work that we will see people heal families and save lives. And, and I think it's very important, and I appreciate the nationwide net that is being cast, because yes, while each community is unique, a heavily military and veteran-focused communities such as Colorado Springs, Colorado, with our five military installations, what works here could possibly work in other military communities like Norfolk, Virginia, or San Antonio, or San Diego, again, on a much larger scale, and implemented in a different way, but some of the bedrock techniques can be transferred to others. And, and that really, in recommendation eight, and I was really encouraged to see this because how important it is, and we need to have a conversation around lethal means safety. And the last of your programmatic recommendations is increase implementations of programs focused on lethal means safety, firearms, medications, suicide hotspots, things like that. Absolutely. I'm really proud of our massive collection of individuals and organizations that worked on this work for many, many reasons, but maybe none more important to me. And I feel the proudest that we were able to come to a place so that we do have this recommendation, because for some people, just even raising the issue of lethal means safety creates some stress, some agitation around, are we saying anything about Second Amendment rights? And the answer is no. This is not about moving in any direction that removes firearms from our veterans, our service members. This is about having the conversation about the importance 
of lethal mean safety. The research is very, very clear that when someone is in a, a state where they are suicidal, if we build in space and time between them and whatever lethal means they have chosen, we have a huge opportunity. We are much more likely to save their lives than if we don't do that. And so this recommendation is focused on, as you mentioned, not just firearms, but other methods that people use to die by suicide. So whether it's medications or poisons or bridges, and it's about moving voluntarily with firearms. We want to harness the knowledge and the expertise of the associations, of gun owners, of uh, shooting ranges, of gun shops to help educate around safety. And it goes beyond trigger locks. Are, that's one important piece. But there's also all kinds of other really innovative work that's now being done to make sure that people have access. And again, when we think about bridges, we're meeting with bridge authorities all over the country to talk about what happens when we include, whether it's phones on the bridge, whether we have posters, whether we include, as they are doing now in the Golden Gate Bridge, building nets. We know that these interventions save lives. So it's an important conversation that we'll continue having. And, and again, we've received great bipartisan support for the conversation and support from our VSOs and our MSOs and from some of the gun owner associations in the nation. And again, this is something that, that really to be able to be seeing this, this is sort of the conversations that we're all having. Uh, but having it specifically identified as a recommended area of focus and prevents is really, really encouraging. So we've talked about the communications, the research, and now the programmatic. These last two recommendations out of the 10 big ones is really about policy. And, and recommendation nine, I was really encouraged to see definitely as someone who is at the community level. When we're down here at the bottom of the pyramid, the money doesn't seem to get down to our level as easily as it does to the folks mm -hmm. in the upper tiers. And so recommendation right. nine is uh, develop a coordinated interagency federal funding mechanism to support organizations in the communities that are doing the effective work going back again to that evaluated and implemented recommendation. What we're doing first and what we've actually been doing over the last several months is looking at what is currently in the pipeline. Does the, the federal government currently have funding that's focused on suicide prevention or empowering our veterans? Because, you know, as we know, the public health campaign, this is for everyone. We that conversation to be happening everywhere, everyone, because suicide is something that affects all humans, uh, but at the programmatic level, our focus is on our veterans and our military families. And so what we're looking, as we look across the federal government, there's $1.8 billion, billion with a B, dollars currently focused on efforts that are suicide prevention focused or empowering our veterans. And so what we've been doing is cataloging that, and we will be working across the next few months Again, we want to break down silos. We want to make sure that if there's funding available or funding coming that maybe hasn't been uh, specifically focused on veterans in the past, but certainly looks like it might be, could we, whether it's the, the next round of that funding, can we have those conversations to ensure better coordination, better integration, better availability? That's part one. 
Then part two will be to really look at where are the gaps. And as you said, the gaps are often funding may not reach the community level. And so through prevents, how do we work with our legislators, our partners on the Hill, our partners in the community and other stakeholders to create legislation that would lead to additional funding? Our job through prevents is not to lobby for any specific bill or any specific legislation. We created in the roadmap and in the, the supplemental materials, which is that 300-page document that if folks want to read that, I welcome you to. It's a, it's a lot of great material. But we lay out there what is sort of the ideal, if you will, legislation that would support this kind of work. And that allows us then any bill that comes along, we can then say this is looking great. It, it lines up in this way, in this way, in this way, maybe not so much. And then it's for those who are out there and that their job is to work with both sides of the aisle to make those, turn those legislative items into bills and, and to get funding flowing. So it's a two-part approach that we're taking what is currently there that's available that maybe we can have some better coordination, integration, and, and hopefully get those dots connected better so that community organizations are receiving funding to support them and then ultimately what is needed, where are the gaps, and what can legislation do to bring funding to communities where the work is happening? No, and I, I think that's really important, again, looking at it from my level, attempting to build a suicide prevention coalition in my local community. The two scarcest things are time and money, right? This mm -hmm. happens to be one of my five things that I'm doing. And so, and this is one thing even very early on, Cicely McElwain from SAMHSA identified that the infrastructure at the community level isn't there where it may be at the higher level. We do have an office of suicide prevention at our state level, but those that infrastructure may not be there However, more money couldn't hurt. And really, it's not the money that is the important thing, but it's about building out the infrastructure. And then the final yes. recommendation is really about suicide safer care, providing access to suicide safer care is really looking at how do we expand the network of qualified healthcare providers, not just mental health providers. I'm sure that goes to medical providers, but it's really talking about when that individual who is in a suicidal crisis interacts with a healthcare provider that they have the likelihood to interact with somebody who is able to provide suicide safer care. Absolutely, and this fits, as you can tell, with the, some of the recommendations above that are about training, but policy work will really ensure that whether it's an employer, so when we talk policy, we're talking federal, but also state and local government, but also companies and universities and we need to look at and continue to explore opportunities to deliver care in new and different ways. So how do we ensure that there are some wonderful programs that have been developed that actually provide training to healthcare workers? They're not psychologists or social workers or counselors, because as you and I both know, there aren't enough mental health professionals. We can't wait for there to be enough. It's not even a viable solution, frankly. We need to broaden this opportunity to ensure that policies support the delivery of good services across a range of opportunities. And yes, ensure that then the mental health professionals are there where they need to be and that people have access to them, 
when they are at that level of crisis and that level of need. But so much can be done around education and outreach and engagement by other folks that we need to make sure that that's happening and that that's policy, that policy is supporting that. Yes. Again, as a mental health professional, I recognize many of those things to be true and also critically important. Not all individuals who die by suicide are diagnosed with a mental health condition or even a medical condition, but enough of them are that it does become very critical to expand our network of healthcare providers. And so that's big stuff, right? That's, that's a lot of, <laughs> and as you said, those 10 recommendations and those four functional areas cover 150 different recommendations. So where does Prevents go from here? You say that you just implemented the public health awareness campaign. So what are the next steps? So the thing that I love about this work, it, it sometimes causes my staff a bit of stress, but, but so far they've, they're amazing. They've been great. I don't think they would be with me if they didn't see the world this way too. This is not linear. The work that we're doing, and in fact, if you look at the roadmap on the site, you'll see our strategic framework is not a a logic model that's linear. It's actually a series of circles. In the middle is prevent suicide and then circles going out from there with activities and different areas of focus. Why? Because this all has to be happening simultaneously. And so we're in the process of expanding our office in some very interesting, innovative ways. I sort of hinted at that earlier. So the first year was to build this, and now we are flat out in implementation mode right now with engaging many of the subject matter experts across government and outside of government to build very clear plans, implementation plans, evaluation plans, because we're evaluating what we're doing as we're going so that if we're putting energy into something that isn't effective, we're going to turn, we're going to change course rather than just implementing something because we thought it was a good idea. So that's number one. We've got a lot of incredibly brilliant people from uh, throughout government and outside of government making sure that the implementation for each one of these big overarching recommendations is supported by a a specific plan and champions and those who are doing the, the work on the ground. Then we also are now bringing in a number of action officers. So these are individuals who are currently in other agencies. During the past year, I met with all the secretaries, all the task force members. We had our task force meetings. Everyone agreed that they would give us one or more action officers. Why? Because these are people who have specific expertise in their agency, but They also are going to be tasked to us for the next two years so that we push out these recommendations and have some boots on the ground in the agency, but also so that we're aware of everything that's happening there. Remember what I said about partnerships are only effective if that crosstalk and and the crosswalk is happening ongoing. Otherwise, it's a nice idea, but it's really not interagency coordination. So we're bringing in the action officers. We're setting in motion our implementation plans. We have our priorities for the year that are linked to these uh, recommendations. Even the public health campaign will continue. That will drive a lot of engagement, conversation. The national research strategy that is being stood up to improve research across agencies, but also to pull from outside. And then these community-based efforts and our ongoing state visits. It's a lot 
going on simultaneously, but it is the only way that I believe we can get there is to continue to focus on these different areas and be data-driven, use the data to help us determine if we're heading in a, in a right direction or if we need to turn and continue to work with our partners inside of government and outside government. No, and that's uh, and I think I mentioned it at the beginning, and and even hearing you talk about it more in depth just confirms the Herculean task. You're not just trying to herd cats; you're trying to herd the cat herders who are trying to herd the cats, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. a problem in and of itself. Barbara, I really appreciate you coming back on the show to give us an update of what Prevents is doing, and we look forward to a lot more great stuff in the future. Thank you, Duane. You are such an important voice and you're such a wonderful advocate. And you are one of the partners that is absolutely critical in this ongoing conversation. Thank you for everything you're doing. Anything I can do to help you help us spread the message, um, please let me know. And thank you for your service, your ongoing service to our nation in this critical conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. It's a huge undertaking with lots of moving parts and complicated aspects. Hopefully, this will merge with all of the great work that's already being done. What did you think about the conversation with Barbara? Yeah, so since this was Barbara's second interview for our podcast, I decided I might push myself a little bit and see if I could synthesize across some of the points she made in the follow-up interview and the state of things in our society. First, she mentioned that we all have risk factors, and again, As in her earlier interview, I appreciated her willingness to use herself to show that people are not divided into two groups, those who are at risk and those who are not. Suicide risk is in fact fluid and a crisis can develop during a perfect storm of overwhelming stress. This is probably more clear to many of us than it has ever been. In the last several months, many of us have suffered personal traumas that we could have never imagined or predicted. As a society, we have been infiltrated by an invisible enemy. This enemy has taught us to see contact with others, including those we love, as a potential threat. Many of us have experienced massive change in our identities and the roles that give our lives purpose and meaning. Cut-off grief has become a heavy burden. Many Americans report chronically high levels of anxiety, overwhelming feelings of hopelessness, and crippling fears about the future. These events and their associated psychological impact help us to see that suffering is a human condition, that we all have risk factors, as Barbara said, and that these risk factors are fluid as our lives unfold. Well, that's absolutely true. And one of the things, again, the idea of what suicide is about is an attempt to stop suffering, right? As you said, suffering is a human condition. But when that suffering becomes unbearable for some people and they don't feel like they have the resources, then that's when they think that suicide is an option, although it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same point, it begs the question, what do we do? We have these risk factors, so what do we do about them? Assessing risk factors is a lot easier and more acceptable in some groups than others. Barbara made the point when she said, what works for one group may not work for another. You did as well. But since I've worked with both civilians and veterans, it's clear to me that the two groups need very different approaches when it comes to suicide prevention. For example, warriors are professionally good at hiding their pain. They tend to be non-disclosing at first in therapy, 
until you earn a level of trust with them. In my recently published book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, I use the metaphor of the boy of Sparta to describe how our warriors may fall to deaths of despair. The story is about a boy of Sparta, a warrior in training, who sat stoically in plain view of a room full of people while a hidden fox inside his cloak silently ate his gut. Understanding the warrior psyche yields profound insights about how to reach them and help them turn to their tribe. Being effective with this population requires very different, highly adapted clinical approaches, different than those that work for civilians. That is, uh, as always, a very good point to bring up. In the military, we used to describe mastery of skill as either technical proficiency or tactical proficiency. Technical proficiency was how well you use the equipment, how well you know how to use the equipment. And tactical proficiency was how you employed the equipment, right? So those are two different things. And I think that a lot of people think that since I have technical proficiency in some of these evidence-based practices, for example, and I know how to use these skills, we have to develop tactical proficiency in how we use those skills in interacting with service members, veterans, and their families. And so really, I think this idea of how do you translate the need not just for technical proficiency skill in certain uh, interventions, but how we apply that to certain populations or even to different communities within the military community. I think that's an important conversation to have. Yeah. And for the warrior population, I would say that people need insights at the tactical level and at the strategic level. We have to have a vastly different approach. Yes. And I think that I hope that, as I said, this is what Prevents is able to do is provide that kind of framework. They're not trying to be everything for everybody, but really to be able to provide some different avenues, some recommendations, so that the people on the ground can actually have some benefit when they're working with veterans. So we appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS26. You can get links to everything we talked about, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution. And make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.